sure how I feel about this intro music, but I kind of like it. Makes me want to like... No, that's as far as that goes. <laughs> Let me get to the first page here. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing good. Are you guys ready to get started in a new series? It's called One Church, One Mission, One Jesus. Welcome out there online, wherever you are in the world watching us. Um, we have people all over the world. Early this morning, I got a text from our friend Epaphras out in Tanzania, and he's like, could you send me the notes? I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to do that for three days now, and uh, you get busy. Anybody else here busy at all, or just, just me? Okay, just me. Um, we had a great event here yesterday, a wedding, a big one, but we didn't get home until about 10.30 last night, and I just went, done. I'm done. Um, but anyway, so... We are, we're going to start this new series, and it's not, honestly, I'll tell you, it's not where I thought we were going for our new series. Um, when we talked about, we went through the entire book of James. I hope you guys enjoyed that. If you didn't, you can catch that online. Um, then we talked about the body of Christ, power in the body, and so we talked about spiritual gifts. We talked about what the body of Christ is uh, last Wednesday night, in place of uh, the normal Wednesday night service, we did our spiritual gift assessment test. I know several of you were there um, to learn more about what our spiritual gifts really are and then how to employ them in the church. Now, so we've got all that stuff, uh, all that foundational knowledge, but then here's what can happen. People can take that foundational knowledge and very slowly start to veer off course just a little bit. If you've ever navigated, if you've ever been a pilot or a, maybe a sailor or, or even hiking, you know, you get a half a degree off in your direction, and before you know it, you are completely lost. And so what God put on my heart is to talk about what Paul writes to the Ephesians. Now, the reason it's called One Church, One Mission, One Jesus is because that's, if you broke it apart, that's the theme of his letter to the church in Ephesus. And it's actually a little bit different than a lot of the, um, the other epistles that he writes because when he's writing to the Corinthians, it's, it could be boiled down to going, you guys are way off base. You need to get back to doing things the right way. Stop doing this, stop doing this, right? It's like a letter from your parents, most of Paul's epistles are kind of like that. Here's your problem. Let me help you solve your problem. Ephesians is a little bit different. Ephesians is written to help them stay the course. So we've been talking about how to be doers of the word, body of Christ, all those things. So now we're going to look at Ephesians, which is, and I wrote it down here, it helps us to learn who we are, and what the church is meant to be, okay? That's kind of what it boils down to me. And then ultimately, how to live a life reflective of being one chosen by God and what that means, the, just the enormity of what that is. So we're going to be, uh, obviously, in Ephesians a lot, but also Acts, which is going to really encompass a lot of it, and then First Timothy, I'll explain this why, but there's a lot of parallels uh, between 1 Timothy and Ephesians. <clears throat> so today, the point really today is to lay out the groundwork. So it's, it's all about studying um, 
in an expository way, doing correct exegesis, all these fancy Bible terms uh, that Kayla loves, wearing her, wearing her, her theology nerd t-shirt right now. Um, so she's familiar with all these terms. But if you want to study Scripture correctly, one of the very first things you need to do, first of all, read the whole thing, not just pull out little pieces. But then you need to know, what's the context? Why, why was this letter being written this way? Because if you don't understand that, then it's very easy to get off base. And I, I say letter, but, but even the Gospels, we need to know the context. Why was it phrased the way it was phrased? And it's because they're all written to a certain audience. They were written for a certain people. Ultimately, we are all those people. But originally, it was written for a specific reason to a specific group of people. So if we understand that, you wouldn't read a letter that, say, a grandparent wrote to your, to your toddler with the same way that you would write one that, say, your college professor wrote to you, right? You have to understand the context and why you're doing it. That's what today's about. Today's about laying the groundwork and seeing what's going to be in there. And I, and I hope that you're going to enjoy it. We're going to, take, we're going to take a deep dive into Ephesians. So let's start out. <clears throat> the very first verse I'm going to share with you is Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Paul kind of explains why he's doing this. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay. Then he goes on, verses 3 through 6, the next few verses. Being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the body of peace, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called into one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. You guys can be dismissed. <clears throat> if you knew nothing more about Ephesians than that, okay, that's, that's what it's about. Now, though, we're going to talk about why he wrote it like that and the details. We're going to find out about the armor of God. We're going to find out about being the elect. We're going to find out about what it means. Um, submission. Submission is not a word that you like to hear a lot in our culture anymore. Submission to church authority, submission to political authority, husbands and wives, submission. We're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about that. So as I said at the beginning, Paul's letter of all the ones he writes to the various churches and various people, Ephesians is a little different. It's not a correction of serious problems. It's more of a preemptive strike against complacency and thinking that, well, I've got this figured out, so I don't really need to keep looking at it. And before you know it, you know, if you set your compass on a course and you don't ever look at it again, what are the chances you're going to stay on course for long? Very, very slim. So that's what it's about. It's a, it's a strike against complacency, disunity, and error-filled teaching, which it doesn't even have to rise to the level of heresy. Most of us would recognize heresy when we hear it, okay? Most of us would, even if you didn't know exactly why, you'd go, that doesn't feel right, you would know something's a little off when it gets to the point of being outright heresy. 
But error-filled teaching is fine degrees, and it can be just as dangerous because ultimately where you end up is just as far away. So that's what we're going to talk about, and I think it's so timely for us, for the church in general today, to talk about it. You can kind of break Ephesians into two parts. The first few chapters are about our identity in Christ, who the church was literally meant to be. And then the second half is all about how then we should walk and conduct our lives as a reflection of that. So that's what it's about. So now, before we get into the, to the letter in, in general, we're going to look at the context. We're going to start right there. Here's the story about how Paul, the Apostle Paul, founded the church in Ephesus. That's what we're going to talk about. And it's important to know how it started, how it got founded, before then we can really understand how and why he talks to them the way that he does. So it was during Paul's, <clears throat> most of you know, many of you know, that Paul did a series of mission trips, okay, all throughout Asia Minor, uh, Europe, went, you know, all over the place. And they are kind of generally broken apart into it's his first missionary journey, his second missionary journey, his third missionary journey. If you want to just kind of like break it apart into eras, maybe to make it easier to study, this was technically during his second one is where we are now in time and space when we start this. It's around 60, 61 AD, okay? It's a little while ago. He had already traveled throughout Europe and Asia Minor, kind of doing these, these mission trips. He, he'd founded the churches in Lystra and Laconium, Galatia, which is where we get the Galatians, Philippi for the Philippians, uh, Macedonia, all over the place. Ultimately, yeah, all over. He's gone all over, founding all these churches all over the place. Um, <clears throat> ultimately, ends up in Philippi, where it's the first time that he's arrested and beaten and jailed for generally just being a nuisance, which happens to him quite often. And yet, he didn't stop. He kept going. So then he goes to, to Thessalonica. He goes to Berea, Athens, Corinth. Finally, once he's in Corinth, he gets the church started there. Nice, everything is going along well. He takes this couple with him, this well-seasoned uh, couple, very good standing in the community, um, just natural leaders, just, just good people. And he takes them with him and heads for Ephesus. Now, um, he's going to help them start a church there. Now, these people's names, anybody know their names off the top of their head? Priscilla and Aquila. And here's a picture of them. May not be an actual photo. But it re to me, when I saw this, and there's pictures all over the place that you can find paintings and different depictions. But to me, that kind of captures who they were. They were an older, as I said, kind of a, not old, old, but seasoned couple. Back then, if you were 40, you were considered on the backside, right? which now, now I know it's more like 90 is maybe the, that's the backside. I keep pushing that back every year, every year. But this is, they're just kind of salt of the earth people, good people, good standing in the community. Good, and he takes them with him. <clears throat> um, Aquila, most people say, who's, who's the, the man here, was one of the original 70 disciples that were sent out. 
okay? That's, that, we don't know that for a fact he wasn't named, but time and place and all these things kind of tend to back that up. So then, so they leave that area, they leave Corinth, and they head towards Ephesus. Here's kind of a map of that area. Now, I was hoping it probably translates better online um, than it does on this size of a screen. But here's Sicily, here's Italy right here, the boot, most people can see that. Crete, here's Corinth, and then Athens, and Ephesus is over here in what it says is Turkey, but back in, it was known as Asia Minor then. And so these heading off this direction across this span of sea to go to Ephesus. All the way down here, if you can see it, this is where Jerusalem and Israel and, and Jordan and everything are down there. So that's kind of, for those of you who learn sort of visually, that's sort of where they're headed, right? So they go there. <clears throat> now, he gets there. He founds the church, and that's all, all found in, in Acts in different places. They talk about getting the church started. He gets it good and, good and going, up and strong and ready to go, hands it over to Priscilla and Aquila, and, and he takes off. Then he leaves. He's moving on. Then the very first hint of a problem starts. And it's not a big problem. It's something you would look at on the surface and go, that's not a bad thing, but it helps us understand how vigilant sometimes we need to be about church unity and things like that. Um, Well-meaning newcomer shows up and starts to make some waves, starts to create a little confusion about authority and teaching and direction. We find that in Acts 18. You can read all of Acts 18 if you want the whole thing, but I'll read this section to you. Acts 18, 24 to 28. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was proficient in the scriptures. So far, so good, right? This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was accurately speaking and teaching things about Jesus. We stop there. You're like, that's the kind of guy, I hope he walks through the door right now, right? That's the kind of guy we want. He's going to help us, especially with a new church. We need guys like this. Being acquainted, I'm going to continue that same with verse uh, 25 there. Being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began speaking boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. Well acquainted in the scriptures. When it says well acquainted in the scriptures, what's he talking about? You're not talking about the NIV or the NLT. He's talking about Old Testament scriptures. So he knew everything leading up, all the prophecy. He knew all that. He was well acquainted. He was teaching it accurately. And then he met John, John the Baptist, hearing about a coming Messiah. Hasn't anybody else heard that at point B? I can. It's an oxygen tank in the back, so just try and tune it out. No, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so um, where am I? Uh, Okay. Um, He knew about John the Baptist's teaching, uh, began speaking boldly in the synagogue. Okay, so he gets up and he's teaching accurately. It says he's teaching accurately, but he didn't have the whole picture. 
all he had was leading up to John the Baptist. Didn't have much beyond that. And so they took him aside, this well-meaning, charismatic, good-looking, accurate teacher who knew his scriptures, all this, and they took him aside and said, okay, here's a little bit more information. Fill in some of the gaps maybe that you, that you don't have. But he was a little too high-strung, a little too maybe, maybe not set in his ways because that seems like a negative. There was nothing wrong with Apollos. Strong personality, though, but just didn't quite have the full, accurate picture of who Christ was. And so here's what we see. Acts 18, 27, 28. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, so means Apollos came to them and said, hey, I'd like to go to this other town and teach over there. What was their response? Like, no, we need you to stay here and stay with us. They said, huh, yeah, we think it'd be a good idea if you went over there because we got our hands full here and, and you're just a little too problematic. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So it's easy to look at that and go, Apollos was, he was a problem. They needed to get rid of Apollos because we'll see later on that there's some seeds that he planted that create some issues. We're not talking about heresy. We're not talking about massive misinformation or false teaching. We're talking about fine degrees that just gets them far enough off to be problematic. And we see this here today. I'll be honest with you. I see it here today. Anybody who's been in ministry sees it here today. You find somebody who's charismatic. They're enthusiastic. They love Christ. They want to help. They want to do all these things. And you say, yes, we need help. Jump in. And before you know it then, if you're not careful, maybe you're a half a degree off of where you ought to be. And if that person is influential, charismatic, has a wide reach of people who are listening to them, now, now you got a difficulty. I don't want to squash your spirit, Apollos. I love your spirit. I love your enthusiasm. I love your, gosh, you're everything that we want. But it's just a little difficult. So they pull him aside, they instruct him, and then say, why don't you go over there and let's start over? Because he's already created a little bit of a ripple in their church there in Ephesus. So this is where we are, and this is kind of one of the things that we'll revisit as we go through here. So now, fast forward past the Apollos thing. Paul now is on his third trip. He's on his third trip, and he comes back to Ephesus. All these trips, other than when he founds the churches, are all about just going back, revisiting that church and going, how are things going here? Anything I can help you with? Let's, let's make sure that we're on track and we're going forward with our mission. <clears throat> That's what they're all about. So Acts 19, 1 through 6. Now it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, okay, so Apollos had left and gone back over to Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. <clears throat> he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, on the contrary, we not even heard if there's a Holy Spirit. There's a problem there. Verse 3, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, 
into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So again, just a small degree, but we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Apollos didn't tell us about that because Apollos was well-versed in things prior. He didn't have the full picture. So Paul says, okay, I need to stick around for a little bit. I need to stick around for a little bit, make sure everything is, make sure everyone is on track. He stays there in Ephesus for about three years. Lots of stuff going on around this. <clears throat> but he stays there about three years and proclaims Jesus and makes waves. We all know Paul is all about making waves everywhere that he goes. He makes waves in one really important segment of that society, and it's in business. Like, you can tell me about Jesus, but you start messing with my business, and now we got a problem. They're more than willing to let him preach and be outspoken and do all these things, but when he starts doing things that hurt the local businessman's bottom line, now we got a problem. Ephesus was a major uh, seaport, trade, politics. It was one of the major cities of the, of the whole era there. Um, and Paul was starting to create a little bit of problems for the local businessmen, specifically this one guy named Demetrius. We'll talk a little bit about him, and then he'll just fade into history, so don't worry about it too much. This guy Demetrius, he's a businessman, and he's a silversmith. So he makes his business working in silver and other, other precious metals. Acts 19.23 puts it very succinctly. About that time, a major disturbance occurred in regard to the way. The way is what they called these, this new group of people following Christ. They weren't necessarily even known as Christians then. Following Christ, they called them the way. Now, here's why this was such a problem for Demetrius. <clears throat> It was, it was probably the most, maybe, maybe other than Corinth, but in a lot of ways it was strategically situated to where it was even more important than Corinth was. On the coast of the Aegean Sea, <clears throat> politics, education, all kinds of commerce and trade went through there. And in fact, let's see, you guys went to Ephesus, didn't you? Yeah, I was thinking about you when I was writing this. Talk to them about what's in Ephesus. It's an amazing place right now. Uh, but one of the cool things they have there is a library. I'll show you that in a second. Here's what's kind of remaining of Ephesus right now. That's kind of a lot. I mean, it, it's a really cool city. This is just basically a street view. Um, then the next one, I think, is the amphitheater. Okay. Big, giant amphitheater. And if you got off in the port... They had, it was laid out in such a way to make it just a grand entrance to really just make the town, the city, look spectacular. And the amphitheater kind of laid right at the beginning. You get off on port, big, long colonnade that went down to the amphitheater down there at the end. Uh, and then one of the next major things is right here. This is what's remains, remaining of the library. It's called the Library of Celsus. 
And it was such a, a hub of information. It'd be kind of like this was Google headquarters, but you had to go to Google headquarters. You couldn't just get it from where you were. Um, so all the people coming in from all different ports and cities and nationalities and regions would all come there and share books. So this actually had literal books there. Didn't look exactly like we'd call them, but, uh, but you'd go in there and it was just a, a place to share information and books back and forth. So that's kind of what's left of the library right now. So that's, if you can imagine, Ephesus was a grand city. There was a lot going on. But here's where the real problem comes in. And there are remains of this, but this is what it looked like in its day. This is a temple, and it's the temple of Artemis. Artemis, many of you may know, is not a Christian deity, right? You know about it, John? Yeah. There's not much left. That's why I couldn't find any great pictures of it. But this is, this is what it would have looked like in its day. Artemis was a Greek god, Greek deity, small g god. And the trade there, the way that Demetrius made his money was by making idols, making idols to Artemis. And since this was the most important temple in the most important trade hub in the most important city, there were a lot of people that came through all over the region and they would come to the temple of Artemis. And when they got there, much like we see in Jerusalem where they would come and buy doves for the Passover festival, they would go there and buy their trinkets to go and sacrifice idols, little, little mementos, things like that of Artemis. It was a huge business. And Paul started to make some waves when it comes to that. Acts 19, 24, 27, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing considerable business to the craftsmen. So not only him, but all the people that that worked under him. He gathered these men together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, You know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made by hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. He's got a problem, and he's rallying all the people around there to have problems too. Like, you're messing with my livelihood. Our whole livelihood is built on this temple and getting people here. Things, I'm not going to go too far into that, but things settle down a little bit. Actually, from a very unlikely source, this very pragmatic town clerk who you can read about in Acts, stands up in front of all these people because they're about to riot. They're about to riot and, and create a major issue. And this guy, he stands up and he goes, look, people, listen, listen, listen. We all know that Artemis is the one true God, is, is, is the be-all, end-all. We all know that. Why do we care what this Paul says? Because if we really believe that Artemis is, 
is, is powerful and the, and the object of our worship, why do we care? Why, why do we care? And he calms everybody down, okay? So thankfully to him, Paul is able to get out of town without being strung up. As this all happens, Paul leaves Ephesus now to, to go and minister around the rest of Asia Minor. He's kind of heading back to Jerusalem. You can read Acts 21 for a little bit more about that story. Now, he gets to Jerusalem. Follow me here. I know there's a lot of context and a lot of background here. He gets to Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple like, like any Jew would do. I'm in Jerusalem. I'm going to the temple. So he goes there. And some Jews who had been in Ephesus also traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. That's why they would be there. See him there and go, that's that guy that was causing problems for us. We need to not let him start the same kind of problems here. What they actually do is incite all the other Jews. They, drag, they literally drag him out of the temple and start beating him up in the streets of Jerusalem. That's a problem. Here's the charge. The only thing they had against him that they could say is that you were here and you brought somebody who was not a Jew into the temple. Because Paul was traveling with another guy named Trophimus, uh, who was actually an Ephesian, but he was not a part of the way. He wasn't a Jew by birth. He was just a Gentile. And they said, you brought him into the temple. Well, that's a crime. And that was enough to be able to incite everybody to drag Paul outside and start beating him up. So they didn't need any evidence at that time. It was just a rumor. It's not what he did. But they saw him around town with him. Be careful the company you keep. So Paul is hauled into the Sanhedrin, okay? Background, the Sanhedrin is kind of the Jewish supreme court, I guess is the way we would put it. It's made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. Today we'd call it kind of like Republicans and Democrats, right? It's two... Two groups who are theoretically working together, but in practice, it's tense, let's, let's just say. It's tense, to say the least. So he's pulled into the Sanhedrin, and he's accused of these vague charges, because they don't really have anything they can pin on him. It's just vague insurrection and things like this that they start with no real proof. Paul has this brilliant plan. This is absolutely brilliant. Acts 23, 6 through 9. Paul, again, he's standing there while they're arguing about what they're going to do with him. Perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, began crying out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Okay, you and I might go, okay, and... That was a problem then, because the Pharisees believed in that. The Sadducees did not. Sadducees did not believe in that, to the point where if that subject came up, there's going to be a fight, okay? There are probably a few phrases I could bring up right now in our church where it would probably incite a fight. Let's talk, let's talk about vaccines. Let's talk about, no, let's, let's not. But imagine that 10 times. Imagine one of your bedrock foundational core values. And all of a sudden, he's calling it up. 
When he said this, a dissension occurred between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. (laughs) For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And when a great uproar occurred, and some of the scribes in the Pharisaic party stood up and started arguing heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Okay, Paul has stirred the pot, he's done his bit, and he's probably, you can just picture him like, you guys discuss, and he's just walking away. He just, he just backs out of the room. Acts 23.10, and when a great dissension occurred, the commander, this is the, the uh, Roman commander who's there, whose whole job is just to keep the peace, was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered his troops to go down and take him away by force and bring him to the barracks. Read Acts 23 if you want more on that. He's like, we don't want a riot. He's the source of this potential riot. Let's just take him and, and bring him into the barracks till things calm down. The problem is they can't do that. It's Roman law. As, as much as Romans get a bad rap, their legal system was really well-defined. They couldn't just do it for no reason. They had to come up with some kind of a charge. So in the, in the, the coming several weeks and months, Paul is handed back and forth between officials who have no idea what to do with him. I don't know. He starts out with the high priest Ananias. High priest Ananias goes, well, I know I don't like him, but I really don't have the authority to do much. So I'm going to give him to Governor Felix, the Roman provincial Governor Felix. I'm going to give him to Felix. Give him to Felix. Felix, after holding on to him for way a long time, doesn't know what to do with him. There's all kinds of information about what happens there. But for our story, he doesn't know what to do with him. Finally, Felix gets, he leaves office and a new governor comes in. The new governor's name is Festus. And Felix goes, I got a present for you, a parting gift. It's this guy named Paul. He's in jail. He's your problem now. And he walks away. Okay, long story short, right? Now, Festus doesn't know what to do with him either. So he goes, I'm going to hand him over to King Herod. Festus gives him to King. This is a Jew problem. I'm going to give it back to King Herod. King Herod takes him on. Nobody knows what to do. Paul almost converts King Herod. Again, read Acts. It's a, it's a great, great story. But Herod goes, I, I, I'm just going to put you on a ship and I'm going to send you to Rome. You're going to be Caesar's problem. Kick the can down the road. So he puts him on a ship for Rome, sends him off to be Caesar's problem. Now, if you read Acts 28, or if you're familiar at all, you know Paul gets shipwrecked. There's a big shipwreck, and Paul survives, and all kinds of stories go on. (laughs) Paul finally, ultimately, after getting rescued and surviving all that, he gets placed in house arrest. We don't know what to do with him. We're going to put you in house arrest. It's called prison, but it's really house arrest. In fact, it's a house that he bought. He bought his own house because he had some money. Buy your own house. We're going to station one guard outside. You can't leave, but we don't know what to do with you either. So just 
live your life and quit being a nuisance, is what they tell Paul. Acts 28, 30, 31. Now, Paul stayed two full years in his own rented lodging, rented lodging, and welcomed all who came to him. Meaning people can come and go. He just can't leave. Verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. This is the scene now. That's the place where Paul writes so many of his epistles. And this is where he starts writing letters, specifically this one to the Ephesians, which starts out, Ephesians 1, verse 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he starts his letter. So this new church in Ephesus, now, by this time, pastored by Timothy. Anybody heard of a guy named Timothy? Pastored by Timothy now. Priscilla and Aquila have, have moved on. Timothy is now in charge there. And they're, they're still dealing with the repercussions of this, of this fine degrees of, of veering off course that started all those years ago. It's just some confusion, some misunderstanding and so Paul writes this to the Ephesians, calls it Ephesians because it's for the whole church, but really he's addressing leadership there, which is Timothy. A lot of people say 1 Timothy could be called Ephesians 2. So there's that connection there. Because when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, it's all about the church in Ephesus and how to solve issues there. So again, they weren't heretical issues, but it was just astray. 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4 says this, Just as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus so that you would instruct certain people not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to useless speculation rather than advancing the plan of God, which is by faith. So I urge you now. And he goes on, 1 Timothy 6, 7. Some people have strayed from these things and have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make such confident assertions. Anybody know anybody like that? 1 Timothy 4, 3. Who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So these are the kind of problems that haven't, nothing, maybe the marriage maybe is a big one, but none of the other ones specifically are so terrible. Paul just says, I just need to remind you who you are. Let's get straight on our doctrine and what our mission is. That's what the letter is about. So Paul sends this letter call it an epistle in churchy language. And he sends it along with a disciple uh, named, named Titus. In Ephesians 6.21, Now, so that you may also know about my circumstances as to what I'm doing. Remember, he's writing from prison, air quotes, house arrest. Titus, the beloved brother and faithful servant of the Lord, will make everything known to you. Okay, so he gives him that authority and says, I'm sending him along with this letter. Okay, so I'm just going to wrap this up, put a little conclusion on it, and we'll go into 
communion. Really, we're going to get into the meat of this letter next week. As followers of Christ, we should all be hungry to be stronger in our faith, to know more about our faith, not just say, I believe in Jesus, and that's enough. Okay, that'll get you salvation, which is great for you, but for the mission and the kingdom of God, there's so much more to that. There's so much more. We should always want to live in a way that's glorifying to God and is worthy of our calling in Christ. And you can only do that by being hungry to know more and making sure that you are not a half a degree off course, that you are straight on track. The temptation is to become complacent. Anybody ever heard the little, the little parable of the frog in the, in the boiling kettle? You start out and you go like, well, what that guy is saying is just a little weird, doesn't feel right, but it's not a problem. Before you know it, it is a problem. Okay, so we are called to keep each other accountable, keep each other on track. The only way to do that is to make sure that you're on track yourself. The heat we face is a whole lot more dangerous and eternal than a boiling kettle. So I hope you make time to join us this summer as we learn about what it's like to be one church with one mission following one Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I am so thankful as always that we have your word, your word that is true and faithful and unchanging and it will guide us through all the pitfalls of this life and you have made it available to us, us common people, You have written it on our hearts. You have written it in so many ways. Internet, there's no excuse for anybody anymore to not hear the word of God. And I'm so thankful that we have that kind of access. But Father, let us set our course on your direction. Not the direction that feels good, not the path of least resistance, but on your course, on your path, and help us to stand firm in that direction. So Father, I just pray that we open hearts and minds for what you have for us in this series. Let us live a life worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 All right, we're going to uh, have communion now. Um, over on this side, we will have uh, communion when Gabe and I will be over here. There's self-serve in the back. If you're new here, we've got wine and juice up front and you just dip it in there. We don't... <clears throat> Just wine up front. That's what I meant to say. Just wine up front. Um, you don't have to be a member of this church. If you're new, we invite you to take communion anyway. All you need is to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I say yes to the sacrifice that he made for me on the cross. If you can say that, we invite you to join us for communion. In the back at the table, that's where the juice is if you don't want wine. And there's self-serve cups back there if you'd like to do that. Let's move about and do that as we enjoy some worship together, okay? And then have a blessed rest of your day. Thank you, guys.